Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I'm curious how Premier Mo's fellow Premier, one province to the west, views the situation and the timing of the vaccine initiative and what concerns does he have about food security for Albertans and, indeed, all of Canada? We're joined on the Roy Green Show by Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. Premier, thank you very much for taking the time. What about this? Uh, let's start with the timing of this of this mandate. What are your thoughts? Well, first, it's important, Roy, to say we encourage everybody to get vaccinated. It, it does it's incredibly effective at preventing severe outcomes and hospitalizations. Uh, and I do think there is a place for vaccine uh, employer mandates in certain circumstances, obviously, for example, in the healthcare system, we've done that with a rapid test option. But, um, you know, you have to apply these policies with a heavy dose of common sense. And Ottawa is just not doing that now uh, because we are facing a global and continental uh, supply chain crisis and crunch, which is partly uh, leading to uh, the biggest inflation in 40 years. On top of that, uh, we import uh, enormous amounts of the food stuff that we use the stocks our grocery shelves and through trucks thank god for the truckers if it weren't for the truckers that kept working day and night over the past two years uh we never would have got through this crisis and so um what this is doing is is making a bad situation much worse uh, by restrict by this quarantine rule um for unvaccinated truckers you know let's talk turkey here we've got several million Canadians walking around with active Omicron COVID infections right now. As we come down the Omicron curve, several million more Canadians will get infected. Having um, a few thousand unvaccinated truckers delivering critical goods to Canada, especially after they've tested negative, is not going to make any measurable difference in viral spread. So there's no compelling reason to do this. It's just making the bad situation worse, forcing up grocery prices even more, leaving uh, uh, sh- shelves bare. It makes no sense. Well, and we allow the truckers to drive I- inside Canada. That's okay. It's just crossing the border for some reason. is not okay. And I say for, for some reason, Premier, because in the earliest days of the pandemic and for the first year, really, when there was no vaccine available, the truckers were heroes to us because they, yeah. they 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 took the risk. And I've been saying for the last several days that it's, the trucker is one person, but it's the 30, 40, 50,000 pounds of product that they have in the trailer behind them that needs to come to Canada. And at this, this juncture, we're talking groceries. That really is what is critically important. The American Trucking Association estimating that the mandate, the U.S. mandate, would remove 50% of the 28,000 U.S. truckers wow. who've been driving across the border. That's the American Trucking Association. That's nuts. And look, this is a bilateral problem, right? It's not just Canada's policy. Well, it's it is. The U.S. So people say, well, what, why shouldn't we do what they... Well, listen, uh, why should we shoot ourselves in the foot if the Americans are? Why don't we lobby them for some common sense as well? Uh, this is going to hurt both economies on both sides of the border. 
And, uh, you, you know, let's be clear, the, the vast majority of truckers are vaccinated already, uh, at least in Canada. That's our understanding. And um, but, but this is, look, Omicron is through the entire population as it is. Um, if we were talking about trying to stop some crazy new variant from the U.S. from entering Canada, which I don't think would be possible, maybe I would understand this policy, but that's not the case here. Have you, had, converse- no Have you had conversations with Mr. Trudeau about this? Yes, I've raised it twice on our premier calls with premier's calls with him, uh, asking him to, uh, to to not enforce this. They have provided uh, several months of an exemption from this, right? Why not just continue? By the way, uh, we're, we're now at the back end of the Omicron wave in Canada, so why would they be bringing it in now? It makes There's absolutely no sense. It looks bloody-minded to me. And uh, insensitively, uh, like the biggest concern Canadians have right now is being able to afford their groceries. It's the cost of living. It's inflation. And this yeah. is just making that situation much worse. And we have uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry in British Columbia saying Omicron is causing British Columbia to manage COVID like the common cold. She's not saying that it's endemic and we should ignore the pandemic and we shouldn't be vaccinated. She's not saying that at all. But she's saying British Columbia is starting to manage COVID like the common cold. So uh, look, the, 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 the common denominator concern, Premier, from people I've spoken with on this program, including Perrin Beattie yesterday, the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, is the timing. It's the middle of winter, yeah. and we import finished food products from the United States, whereas we export raw ingredients. Um, we, need, we need what we need. We need the supply chain to be working, and truckers need to be crossing the border. So, I mean... I'll tell you this, from the very first week of the pandemic, in, early, in mid-March of 2020, um, one of our immediate concerns was supply chains, particularly truckers, being able to bring groceries up here. And uh, we were tracking that every day because we we're about three days of running out of food in this country if the trucking system stops. We already have a, a, a very significant continental shortage in truckers, long-haul truckers. And you, you add this on top of that, and it's, it's going to really create serious problems for people. So, uh, again, I just say apply some common sense uh, to this, and uh, unfortunately that does not seem to be in great supply in Ottawa right now. So you have, and your fellow premiers have in the past, I can just look back a few years, you have, as a group, challenged the Prime Minister. Maybe not all of you, but five or six of you did. Wrote a letter about pipelines and such, and tankers. Is there the will among premiers to challenge the prime minister or alert him to the fact that, hey, you need to take another look at this? Would it be helpful if you did that and you did it as a group publicly? Because I yeah, think you I've, might have a lot of support. I've actually approached some of my colleagues about that, and there are several premiers who agree with this. And I, I know of, of uh, two others who have expressed these views verbally uh, to the PM. Uh, and, and so, yeah, we're, we're going to be pursuing exactly that this week. Um, and I know that that uh, it's not easy to do a policy reversal, some, but you got to do the right thing, and uh, this is serving no useful purpose. It's uh, so, so we would just we'll do every, whatever we can mm-hmm. in the days to come to try to get Ottawa to reconsider this, reverse this policy. Unfortunately, again, it comes back on the Americans now who have imposed a similar policy. Uh, but just because they've done something dumb doesn't mean we should shoot ourselves in the foot and we should be lobbying Washington to apply common sense here as well. So let's get at uh, this issue. I'm going to get back at the issue of food and food security and where we are with the supply chain and how 
you know, how comfortable are we with that we that we have the food that we require in this country? Last week, Professor Sylvain Charlebois of Dalhousie University spoke of his concerns about food security for Canadians. And this week, the Canadian Federation of Independent Grocers expressed concern that because of rising labor um, issues and product shortages, Canadian food security may be under threat. Then there's the cross-border trucking mandate is also creating stress. Professor Silva Charlebois rejoins us, director of the Agri-Foods Analytics Laboratory and professor at Dalhousie University. Professor Charlebois, thank you very much for the time. You're becoming an indispensable participant on this program. <laughs> for the second week in a row, my pleasure, Roy. Nice we, to talk to you again. We, yeah, good to talk to you. We may have to make it three weeks in a row. We'll, we'll see what happens over the next few days. Let's talk about uh, the issue of food security first. Please, again, define what food security means to Canadians and where do we stand now as far as you're concerned and food security for all of us is also concerned. Oh, absolutely. So uh, it can be defined in many different ways, but the way I define it is very simply by looking at three uh, pillars. Uh, One is food safety, of course. If you uh, if you have food, it needs to be uh, as safe as possible. Uh, and so uh, Canada, uh, I would say, uh, has done very well uh, when it comes to food safety over the years. Uh, we've actually compared Canada with uh, many other nations, and, and Canada's performance is outstanding. Uh, the second pillar is food access. So you need to make sure that your population do have access to some food. So you have to look at the efficiency of of distribution, uh, the point of service, uh, where products are sold, et cetera. Uh, You have to think about uh, remotely located uh, regions. Of course, in Canada, we've we've actually have seen uh, food access challenges, and I'm thinking particularly of the north. Uh, That's been a challenge for sure. And, uh, and of course, with Omicron and everything else going on, food access has been an issue for some parts of the country. Not all, but some parts of the country. We're already seeing empty shelves. So that's, that's a sign. And, second, and lastly, uh, if you don't have food access or if food access is challenged, then you end up uh, facing a food affordability problem. So the cost of food, inflation, and we spoke about that this week with uh, StatsCan numbers for December. For the first time in many years, uh, the food inflation rate right now, well, as of December, uh, was north of 5%. And so we don't expect that to uh, to decrease anytime soon. In fact, because of what's going on with with the, uh, with the with our food system, we actually believe it could reach uh, 7% by the time we're done with 2022 at the very least. So, I mean, that could drive some foods right out of the affordability range for many Canadians. Yes? Oh, oh absolutely. And uh, so, so thankfully for many of us, we can absorb that shock because uh, it is a bit of a shock. And of course, you can you can strategize around that. If you have a car, for example, you can go to different places, you can buy in bulk, you can do different things to save money. But for a lot of people uh, with, with a high food inflation rate, you're, you're often left behind just because you, you just have to buy what you need for the next week, for the next few days. You only have access to one point of service for uh, for for food so you can't you can't really drive around uh, 
you can't go to different places. You can only go to one location. That really will penalize uh, households with uh, with less means. We also, you and I talked uh, in December about the dairy products becoming more expensive, and this was before we started to talk about shortages because of the supply chain. But uh, the dairy prices, uh, dairy foods were going to be more expensive by mid-February, and you told us that was going to extend into every sh- aisle in the grocery store. That's still on on the table, isn't it? As it were, no pun intended. Yeah, that, that's right. Actually, when you mentioned uh, uh, earlier that uh, we could talk again next week for the third week in a row, that actually may be the topic of discussion because the increase. So dairy farmers out there will actually be getting way more for their milk as of February 1st. Uh, and that's going to happen uh, in in about a week and, and change. And so their increase is going to be 8.4%. If you buy milk to make cheese, if you buy milk to make yogurt or all the dairy products we find in the grocery store, your costs are going to go up significantly. And uh, some manufacturers have actually mentioned that uh, they're going to be charging 15% more. So we're, we're bracing for, for February. Uh, it, it's not going to be easy. Now, we, we never know for sure what may happen at a grocery store, but pressures are absolutely going to be real in the dairy sector across the board. How does this all factor into the uh, into the equation, uh, Professor? We we talked about the, uh, the the vaccine mandate last weekend, but there have been these changes with the American uh, mandate coming into effect, and now the ATA saying half of the twenty eight thousand may not drive into Canada anymore. I believe it. Uh, so, if you add the two vaccine mandates together uh, last week and, and this week, um, we now have almost. Uh, based on some of our estimates, about 140,000 truckers who no longer qualify to cross the border, both ways. 140,000. So if you're an American, it's a lot of people, yeah. And uh, so if you're an American trucker or a trucking company uh, trying to service Canada, uh, to look for uh, someone to go uh, up north uh, in winter weather, uh, in the middle of January or February, uh, it, it has become more difficult. You have fewer options. And, and as, I, as I told you last week, my concern is that in, in America, you, companies have options. Truckers have options. They can service other states, uh, other markets, Mexico. Uh, in Canada, the, the $26 billion worth of food we buy every year most of it is on post is is fully processed, ready to sell. Where stakes are much higher on our side, and so what we're hearing right now to get truckers to service Canada, freight costs have basically doubled in the last ten days alone, uh, and that's likely due. Uh, we don't know for sure, of course, but that's likely due to vaccine mandates. Yeah, when we talk about uh, the amount of food that comes into this country from the United States, what, $21 billion an- annually in agri-food products from the United States. And as you say, while the U.S. imports raw ingredients from Canada, Canada imports fully produced, produced foods from the United States. So we put that on the table, and then there are also the labor issues, which the independent grocers are talking about. I would imagine all grocers are facing that. All of these factors come together. It, it starts to develop, and I don't want to scare people too much, 
but it starts to become the perfect storm, does it not? Absolutely. So, again, uh, I mean, we can't blame uh, what's happening. Uh, we can't blame vaccine mandates to, to what's happening right now. There are several, several factors, like the weather. Uh, Omicron, again, has slowed things way down. We, we've had recalls uh, across North America. I mean, those are the things that will impact um, the food system. Uh, but the policy-induced uh, policy-induced factors like the vaccine mandate uh, has added fuel to the fire. I mean, it, it's again, questioning the mandate itself is, is, is probably a conversation you may want to have with an expert, which I'm not in vaccines. But the timing of it from a, from our, from a food security perspective uh, was not great. I, I think we should have waited a little bit uh, to, to give a chance to the food industry to breathe a little bit uh, and, and go through the winter and, and safely uh, exit uh, Omicron's wrath and, 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 yes, and then implement the mandate when we're ready. Yeah, Bloomberg News had a headline, uh, Trudeau playing a dangerous game with his trucker vaccine mandate, and that was a, a few weeks ago. It's all part of the bigger picture. Is it possible for us to have any sense, because this is going to be important to the people who are planning their, their budgets, trying to determine, you know, how much can we spend on, on the essentials, and the essentials including food. Is there a way to calculate with any degree of certitude or accuracy what we may be facing as far as food price increases are concerned over the next 11 months, let's say? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So if you go on the web and you search Canada's food price report, uh, you'll find uh, our, our report uh, we released in December. Uh, that was Dalhousie, the University of Guelph, the University of Saskatchewan, and the University of British Columbia. All four of us, we worked together on this report every year. It was our 12th edition. And uh, in December, we were expecting food prices to rise by as much as 7%. Yeah. Uh, for 2022, we still are very comfortable with that forecast for now. We're actually meeting this week to revisit the forecast, but my guess is that we're going to stick to the forecast. But at the end of the report, uh, no matter how uh, your household looks like, you can actually see how much it would cost you if you're, say, a middle-aged man, middle-aged woman, if you're a girl or a boy, uh, even if you're a pregnant woman or a, uh, a, a nursing woman. So we actually have had, uh, we've adopted a very granular approach to, uh, to food costs. So you can actually go in, consult that, that, that report, and really see how much it could cost you over the next 12 months. So the Canada Food Price Report. That is correct. Yep. Well, we'll Canada say- Food Price Report 2022. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Justin Trudeau fears, quote, armed conflict in Ukraine, end quote. Other nations are echoing the concern. So 
is the concern overblown? Although, were the world to plunge into warfare, the next question that we ask ourselves in this country is how capable, as far as any necessary equipment is concerned, is Canada's military to hold up its responsibility within the NATO alliance? What are Canada's military strengths and what weaknesses may be exploitable were it to come to combat, perhaps in the far north? I mean, we don't want to think about these things as being possible, but they are. That's why we have a military and we have history that tells us not only are they possible, but they do, in fact, happen. Joining us is Vice Admiral Mark Norman, retired, now former head of Canada's Navy and Vice Chief of Defense Staff. Admiral Norman, it's always an honor to speak with you. Thank you for joining us. Hey, well, good afternoon, uh, Roy, and to you and your listeners. Uh, belated best wishes for 2022. Thank Quite you. Quite situation quite a situation we've got on the go right now. Yeah, would you would you give us your provide us your assessment of what is is happening really happening between uh on, on the on the Russian Ukraine border? How do you how do you see it? Well, I'm 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 only able to uh see as much as your listeners are in terms of what's in open source reporting. My my sense of this is um this is, uh, at its best, a significant um, posturing event by uh, Putin. Um, and obviously, uh, worst case scenario is that it is, as it's being described by some, as a precursor to an invasion of Ukraine. My instinct tells me that much of the, the uh, strategic objectives um, of Putin and his regime could be achieved without actually invading uh, Ukraine. Um, but, uh, you know, time will tell um, whether they actually want to go through with it or not. And I, I think it's already put him uh, back um, on the international stage. Um, he's got the West, uh, NATO in particular, um, on the defensive. Uh, we're seeing uh, fractures uh, in the alliance with respect to the different capitals having different views on what are or are not the appropriate responses. And of course, you know, he's playing a long game here in terms of uh, Ukraine and the, the historic claims by Russia um, that uh, Ukraine is part of Russian territory are, are obviously um, uh, not supported by the West, but nonetheless, that's the premise of, of what he's up to. So that there uh, is my view of this. So, so he could be—he's playing. He could be playing a high-stakes game and have no cards. Playing a well, bluff. Well, you know, he's got cards. He's got he's cards. Got yeah, he's got a hundred thousand troops on the border, um, and that represents a significant overmatch in terms of military capability uh, against the forces that are um, able to defend Ukraine. But I'm—I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I—I I, I could be wrong, um, um, but I. I I think he's gonna. I think he's gonna see how far he can push this in the coming days. Okay, Admiral Norman, how do you assess Canada's military capability? I'm not talking about the uh, the uh, fighting capability and the the determination and the patriotism and the commitment of our troops. I'm talking about what they've been provided with to fight. How capable are we? If it were to come down to it at some point, even if it were in the Arctic, how capable are we of properly uh, defending our territory and standing up to our NATO commitments? 
Well, in the context of uh, the Ukrainian discussion, of course, anything that we would do would be part of um, a NATO response. And in that in that context, um, we're able to provide reasonable um, levels of uh, representative capability. And uh, it's it, it could be described by some as token capability, but I think the capabilities that we would provide would, in fact, and are um, capable. We just don't have a lot of them. And I think that that's probably the, the key takeaway for your listeners is um, we have uh, good equipment. You've already talked about the caliber um, of the men and women who serve. But ultimately, uh, our biggest challenge is capacity, uh, bench strength, to put it in a sports um, analogy. And um, we really couldn't really push a lot out at the same time. And as it specific to your question about the Arctic, uh, and this has been an area of um, concern for decades, um, our capabilities are um, less than modest uh, in many respects. And, uh, you know, this is an area where Russia is unquestionably, unquestionably the dominant military power in the Arctic at the moment. You're the reason that our Navy, and you were the commander of the Navy, you're the reason that our Navy is more than just a, uh, a shore patrol Navy because you made sure that we had a supply ship. And most Canadians know the story, and, and we thank you for all that you did, Admiral. We always will. Um, but where do we need, where do we need um, better equipment? We, we talk, you know, we bought um, out-of-date and uh, tired jet fighters from Australia. We have those four submarines that were bought from the UK. The less said about them, the better, I think. Uh, what do we need? What's what's number one on the shopping list for the military? Well, um, the problem is it's a very lengthy shopping list, as you're alluding to in your question. And, uh, you know, pretty much uh, every significant capability um, the military has um, is either long overdue for replacement or um, it will need replacement, um, you know, in the coming decade or two. As far as immediate priorities are concerned, I, I think the the way they're mapped out at the moment is is accurate. I think we need to get this fighter decision made, and we need to move on with that as quickly as possible. We need to get the design of the next uh, class of uh, surface surface combatants for the Navy locked down and start building those. Um, there's a whole series of projects that uh, the Army and the other branches are waiting for. Um, the shopping list is is endless. And, and this is part of the problem, Roy, to your, to your point, is that there's an expectation that, you know, you, you, you can put a big push on and deliver a bunch of stuff, and then you can forget about it for another decade or two. And that's just not the case. The stuff is continuously in need of um, replacement for a variety of reasons. A, it gets old, B, it's no longer combat effective, and C, the technologies um, that uh, are out there on the battlefield are changing really quickly, and we need to keep up. So those are the biggest problems. And then, of course, we don't have enough people to uh, to make it all work. Yeah, so we, uh, we have a job to do, and they have to have commitment from the federal government. Military procurement has, in this country, historically, other than in World War II, when we ended the, the war, we were, I think, the, what was it, the third or fourth largest naval power in the world, and 
We, we did a tremendous work, but we always seem to be reluctant to provide our military with what it needs because you don't need them until you do need them. Admiral, uh, I, I hope we can talk again and, and carry this on in, uh, and, and get to specific um, items that we require. I'd like to talk to you about the Navy one day. You, you, know, you, were, you were the boss. I was the lowest rank possible ordinary seaman standard. So <laughs> I will defer, sir, to anything you say. Well, you probably got some good ideas. I know some of the best ideas I got for were from some of the junior folks I work with. So anyway, well, thank you, Roy, and all the best to you and your listeners, as I said. And let's let's hope uh, that this situation sorts itself out and um, we're, we're not on the brink of, uh, of something uh, frightening here. There are so many people in this country who love curling, so many people in this country, and who curl on a regular basis. And curling is a full gold medal Winter Olympic sport now. So we're going to talk to the Canadian who had a great deal to do with curling becoming this full gold medal Olympic event and how that came to be, as well as the Canadian considered by many to be the greatest male curler of his generation and perhaps the greatest male curler of all time. Warren Hansen is the author of Sticks and Stones, The Battle for Curling to be an Olympic Sport, Warren was Director of Event Operations and Media Relations for the Canadian Curling Association. He also was Managing Editor of Extra Ends Magazine, Canada's national curling magazine, for 30 years. Warren is in the Canadian Curling Hall of Fame as a curler builder. He is also in the World Curling Hall of Fame, also as a builder. How are you, Warren? I'm great, Roy. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for getting in touch. Oh, it's a pleasure. Great to talk to you. Yes, sir. Kevin Martin began his victorious years as a curling champion by winning the Canadian Junior Championship in 1985. In 2010, Kevin Martin became the first Olympic skip to go through the entire tournament without losing a single match and winning the gold medal. Kevin is in the Canadian and World Curling Halls of Fame as a curler and operates the Kevin Martin Curling Academy in Edmonton. Honored to speak with you, Kevin. How are you? Oh, thank you very much. Great to be with you, Roy. Yes, sir. Um, I want to ask you about curling in a, in a in a little bit. I want to start with that, though. So, Kevin, in a national poll a few years ago, you were declared the greatest male curler of all time, and, and you won that gold medal, went undefeated at the Vancouver Olympic Games in 2010, the only skip to have accomplished this feat. What was it like to do that in your home country in Vancouver? What was that like? Yeah, what was it like? It was amazing. Um, you know what? The building was absolutely insane. Uh, Terry Jones, a really good writer, said that he, what, it, what it sounded like to him was an aircraft taking off. That's how loud the building was. Wow. So, you know, that, that's pretty special. That's something that stays in your mind forever. Uh, just that kind of uh, crowd and response in, in a sporting event. It was really something special, and that night, actually, Saturday evening, we wanted the, the last Saturday of the Olympic Games, and downtown Vancouver had 250,000 people partying downtown in Vancouver that evening. So it was just, it was crazy, it was wonderful, and uh, yeah, we were sure lucky to be able to have the opportunity to play in front of a terrific crowd like that. What a tremendous memory do you have, uh, have with you, and I understand, because I've never curled, but I understand... You uh, curlers know how to party. <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> well, so I've heard. heard. Well, you, 
Yeah, you know, that, that is certainly the case back in the day. You know, these, these new players, they seem to be a little more disciplined than what we might have been in the past. But, but you're right. There's a, it's, a, it's a social sport, a lot like golf that way. Yeah. Uh, wonderful people involved. Uh, we make so many great friendships with the team that you're on, but also all around the world with teams that we played against. Yeah. So it's a very special sport that way. I'm sure it is. And the social interaction is so incredibly important because you make friendships for a lifetime and you have these memories that just last forever. It's like, you remember when you did this? Remember when you did that? <laughs> and the stories get bigger and better as you go along. Not for you because you want everything, but for people, you know, for the rest of us, kind of. Well, you know what? It's a case that, uh, yeah, you catch that fish and it goes from three pounds to four to five. And you're right, as the stories as the stories are told, they tend to get a little more exciting and a little better all the time. <laughs> <laughs> what was it somebody said? Don't stop me if you've, if, if you've heard this before because I want to hear it again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Warren, you felt in the 1970s, and you were a great curler, an acknowledged great curler in this country and around the world. You felt in the 70s. The curling wasn't receiving appropriate respect as a sport. And so you joined forces with Ray Kingsmith to get curling into the Olympics, first as a demonstration sport. How difficult was that? It was a, a huge battle to take on, and it started with a, a bug in both Ray's and my mind. Interesting enough, I was an Edmontonian, he was a Calgarian. And that's one of the things that, that we could agree on was curling had to become better recognized and more mainstream. But curling at that point in time was an old boys game, and it was uh, it was a lot of tradition and a lot of just this is the way curling is. It, it wasn't really thought by many to be a sport. Many people thought it was just a game participation, and so we had huge, huge mountains to overcome. So for it to ever become a medal sport in the Olympics was one of our wildest dreams. And when Calgary was awarded the Games in 1982, we began to work down that road, but it was it was a battle, and my book goes into details of the struggles and the difficulties that we had to try and bring a lot of people kicking and screaming to the fact that if we were going to get the recognition of the sport we wanted, a lot of things had to change. And fortunately, it was a battle. We got there eventually, but it, it wasn't easy. And your book is Sticks and Stones. Give us uh, an example of, of one of the battles. What was, what was one incident where you said, oh, my God, here we go again? Well, let me give you a very simple one. <laughs> okay. For the first 50 years of the Briar, the Canadian Men's Championship, it was sponsored by a tobacco company, McDonald Tobacco, uh, which everyone was very thankful for. But in 1979, they withdrew from the Briar sponsorship for, for many reasons, government pressure being one of them. So in 1980, for the first time ever, uh, McDonald was not the sponsor of the Briar. So up until then, smoking was allowed on the ice. And believe me, it did happen on the ice. And uh, I took on the struggle then of trying to get curling or part because smoking not to be part of uh, the game at the 1980 Briar in Calgary. And it was a huge uproar. The fact that how dare would I, one year after McDonald was gone as a sponsor, would I suggest that smoking on the ice wasn't to be allowed? And it took even a few years for that to get accepted as being a way of life. So that's just one small example of the struggles we were in. Uh, there was no rule enforcement of any kind, officiating. Uh, there was a few statistics or records kept. And I can go on and on of things that we had to try to get changed if we would ever have a chance of the sport becoming Olympic. Boy, that takes, uh, that takes a lot of commitment, dedication, and determination. Uh, Kevin, when you hear Warren talk about uh, you know how loosey-goosey things were, 
What's it like today from the competitor's perspective? You're going to be doing color commentary, I believe, for NBC in Beijing, right? Yes, I will not be in Beijing, though. I'll be calling it uh, from the U.S., but the game has changed so much. And, yes, it was so important to uh, to get, first of all, of course, as a demonstration sport in 88 in, Cal- in Calgary and then in Albertville in 1992, which I was a part of, to get the game changing in a more professional uh, direction. And that is certainly the case now. The teams are in uh, – they run the team as a business. Um, they're very professional, very fit, incredibly fit. Um, it's just really taken a different direction, and it's one of the biggest, fastest-growing sports in the entire world. Um, a lot of it because of that, I think. Um, worldwide, um, the parity across the world is incredible, especially in the women's game. Just um, at this Olympics, I believe at least seven or eight of the teams could win the gold medal. There are very few sports where you could honestly say, you know, almost the entire field could win gold. Wow. Very uncommon. Yes, uh, and that's, that is that amazing. Is the truth. That is amazing. It is amazing. Yeah, and that's something that's happening in curling, and it's and a great deal of it is because of Olympic status and bringing the game into the Olympics in the '80s and now where it is today is so strong. And uh, and I think a big deal, a big part of it, is getting in the Olympic Games to uh, to drive the professionalism of it. So, I so think good, a good, sorry, I think a good number, Roy, is when we first started working on this project in the late '70s. There were roughly 18 countries in the world that were members of the World Curling Federation, and that was one of the initial battles that we ran up against we didn't realize. While sports had been admitted to the Olympics before without the minimum 25 countries, that wasn't going to be the case with curling. So we only had 17 nations. Today, the World Curling Federation has 67 members and growing. So it's had a huge impact. That is tremendous, and a lot of that has to do with the work that you did, Warren, um, by getting into the Olympic Games. So... uh, uh, you know, when our hockey teams play, we assume we have to win. If we don't win, we go into mourning. I, me- I remember 1972. I was a very young man, and I was uh, first game in Montreal. Team Canada's up two to nothing against the Soviets. We didn't like them very much at all, so we're up two nothing. And we said, "Oh, in the first, I think it was like what was it, uh, 30 seconds or something." We're up two nothing, and I said, "Well, the final score is going to be 120 to nothing." We, of course, lived through the agony of those eight of those eight games, uh, eventually winning. Um, but we have this attitude that it's ours. We have the same attitude about curling. I, I've never curled, and I've told you that. And I, I you've kindly offered to to um, to have me uh, receive a lesson or two, and I'm, I'm going to take you up on that. But we have the same attitude in this country about curling. Uh, Warren, Canada has to win; it's ours. But the world is good at it now. Yeah, that has whole that whole thing has changed to some degree. Many people in Canada still haven't really got their head around the fact that the rest of the world has become as good as we are, in some cases, maybe even better. And uh, from the early days when the World Championships first happened in 1959, uh, it was all always considered to be almost a, an automatic that Canada was going to win. And if you happen to be on a team that didn't win when you came home, the next year of your life wasn't very pleasant. And I unfortunately went through that situation in 1974 of being a member of the fourth Canadian team who did not win the world championship. Ouch. And so Canada became very accustomed to, oh, if you don't win, what did you guys do? Were you partying all the time? But uh, that has changed a lot. But unfortunately, the attitude still amongst many Canadians is they think that Canada should automatically win at curling. 
And that's not the case anymore, as Kevin has said. There's great parity in both men and women. Yeah. How much strategy is involved when you're in a really high-stakes match? How far ahead are you Are you planning? Are you thinking? And then how how has the equipment changed, say, over the last 20 years? Yeah, well, strategy first. Uh, where are you at? At least four in, though. So probably an hour ahead is what you're playing um, at. Something like that. Certainly, uh, the scoreboard and the even versus odd ends. It's such a chess game, curling at the highest level. You know, uh, everybody's good technically at throwing the stone. It's all about the thinking part of the game at the highest level. So the game is likely 75% strategy, 25% technical at the highest level. So that's what makes it so fascinating for people that don't play all the time, like yourself, Roy, but watch the game and enjoy it. Um, that's what makes it unique and trying to figure out what those chess masters are playing on that sheet of ice because you do need to see into the future. And that's not easy for everybody to do. And from a technical standpoint, as far as the uh, equipment, it's, uh, everything has changed, I think. Uh, the, the curling ice conditions have improved so much uh, with purified water. Um, those, the curling stones are much better. The sweepers, we talked about a little bit about the, uh, about the athleticism of the athlete now. Um, they become so strong, both on the women's and the men's side. So carrying a stone, you can carry it much further and direct it either keeping it straight or have it finish a little bit more, uh, so much more than, than in the past. Even in 2010, which isn't really that long ago that we played in the Olympics in Vancouver, yeah. the game has changed since then uh, so much. So, you know what, it's, uh, it's exciting, uh, the evolution of our sport. It's changing quickly because I believe the rest of the world is grabbing onto our game so much. Um, so, you know, it's just exciting to be somebody who loves the sport like I do and the changes that are happening and they're changing quick, uh, which is wonderful. And now that does cause some, some headaches <laughs> when anything changes fast. You know, it's hard to keep up and there's always going to be some stumbles. But for the most part, a, cha- a sport that's getting younger and younger all the time is healthy. A sport that's changing all the time and evolving is healthy. It's just a lot of work to do on the back end, trying to keep it in the right direction. Of course. How do you like Canada's chances in the uh, in, in, in the Olympics? Well, I certainly think we're sending some good representation on the women's side, Jennifer Jones. That's my vote as being the, the best female curler of all time. So we're sending a strong person there. Brad Gushu, you can't question Brad and, and his team, um, a really strong um, team. And then, of course, John Morris, who won the gold last Olympics with Rachel Holman, who was in the last Olympics, but did not podium in the mixed doubles. So we're sending a strong contingent. Will all three medal? Boy, that's a lot to ask these days, but they certainly could. Uh, we, we wish them all the best, but it's a tough field all the way around, so it won't be easy. Yeah. Warren, uh, mixed doubles, wasn't that your invention? Yes, it was, and that came about in a rather interesting set of circumstances back around 1999-2000. The World Curling Federation was advised by the IOC that it would be good for them to have an event other than a world championship because most of the other winter sports had a World Cup circuit. So they weren't in a position to do so, and they came to us and said, uh, are we able to do something? And the result of that was inventing an event that became known as the Continental Cup. And uh, it was much like the Ryder Cup in golf, that it was the same sport discipline but taking different aspects of it. And we needed a, a fourth leg or aspect to what we were doing. And as a result, uh, myself and my associate, Neil Houston, put our heads together 
And we developed the concept of mixed doubles, not thinking it would ever probably go beyond the Continental Cup. But lo and behold, it wasn't long until a lot of the countries in the world were playing it. And in 2014, it became uh, an Olympic sport. Uh, one of the things mixed doubles has offered the smaller nations of the world, many of them don't have enough good players yet to put together two four-person teams. But with the mixed doubles concept, they're able to put together a good male and a good female. And as a result, have made a lot of these countries uh, competitive probably quicker than they would have become otherwise. Yeah. We have about a minute and a half. Uh, Warren from Sticks and Stones, give us your favorite story. Um, j- just share one story with us. Oh, that's, that's a tough one. I, I think probably uh, one of the biggest challenges was the getting the athletic aspect being uh, bought into by, by all the athletes. And uh, certainly that was uh, an area where I could ramble on forever about some of the challenges that we faced. But we introduced a rather controversial set of training camps uh, in 1987 to uh, offer a second way to get into the Olympics in uh, 1988 in the demo sport. And uh, as a result, there was a whole pile of funny stories came out of that. For the first time that some of these guys had gone through any kind of physical evaluation or fitness aspect of the, of the sport at all, which today seems funny. But uh, back in those days, it was completely foreign object to them. Yeah, uh, sort of like, you know, some of us say that when we were kids, when we were younger, fitness was getting out of your chair. If you could do that, you could do anything. Uh, Kevin, you also, people, if people are looking for good uh, curling equipment, the, the best, uh, they can get it through you, right? <laughs> yeah, it's been a lot of years right now, I, I believe. 31 years since uh, Sean and I opened that first curling store in Edmonton. That's a long time ago, and uh, we're still there the, on the university grounds at the Savile Sports Centre in Edmonton. And, yeah, I love the business and have for it. Jeez, 31 years. Hard to believe. Yeah, what's the webpage? Kevin Martin Curling. There That's, you go. Uh, pretty simple stuff. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.